So if you've uh, studied uh, the Bible much, uh, you've, uh, you understand that the Bible doesn't take away uh, all the troublesome things. You know, it, it doesn't um, make everything uh, easy or all the struggles of life go away or uh, the Bible doesn't tell you it's, it's going to be easy for you. Uh, it actually shows you a lot of the dark moments in the lives of people and it shows you the dark moments of uh, just a Christian walking in faith with the Lord. And so uh, we're going to be looking at a psalm today where you're going to see that. Someone's really going to be struggling with how can God be God or uh, the ruler of the universe or the sovereign Lord or however you want to say that. How can he have all this power and yet at the same time be good and trouble come upon his people? It doesn't make sense. If he's good and he's Lord over everything, he's in control of everything, then why does trouble befall us? That's kind of what the psalmist is asking, and the reality is many of you may be asking. If you watch the news, uh, you could say maybe to yourself, oh, I see in the world like things that are troublesome, but that's with the world. I mean, you could watch it all the time. You could even despair over it and say, yeah, but that's in the world. But you also say, there's good things that are happening in the world, but when it's, you're dealing with uh, God's people, you might stop and say, man, I don't really understand that. If God loves us, He cares for us, He wants good for us, and He has the power to change everything that's going on in the world, then why uh, do we face hard times? That's a big question. Now, the psalmist is going to say, why do his people face such hard times, the ones who are committed walking with the Lord, and yet those who care nothing about the Lord live it up? That, that's even tougher for him to swallow. You know, he's looking and saying, like, they seem to be doing so well, while many of his faithful ones, they're struggling tremendously. I don't understand how that works out. That does not make sense to me. And so he's struggling with God's care of the universe because he thinks, surely he's going to make sure our lives go pretty well. I mean, those who are seeking after the Lord. And so those are questions he's asking. They're questions that have been asked. It's the question that Job asked. Like, sometimes you might forget, but uh, the Psalms uh, are in the same way as Job. They are wisdom. It's wisdom literature. And you're asking yourself questions of life trying to interpret life, trying to understand life. That's what you're doing throughout the Psalms, and you see that uh, even here. And I think it's important for you to say, even in the life of Job, he asked those questions. And if you remember, he had friends that answered the questions for him. Three of them that came up. The first three, uh, who were older and, and supposedly wise, and they said, Job, your troubles, come on, your troubles... You know why you got trouble. You've sinned. You've sinned, Job. And they appear to be wise. They even quote scripture. It's your sin, Job. And Job is like, no, I'm not. I don't think I'm deserving this in the sense of like, I've done something that God's now punishing me. And the reality is, that is not the case in his life. And I think it's important just to say, we have to come to the place with the psalmist and say, God is good. 
He is the ruler of the universe, and we face trouble. Now, the big, if you were to say, theological point is in verse 1. You ready? Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What is he saying? The believing Israel, the people of God, he is truly good to. That, that is the theological point. In Job 1 verse 1, listen to this. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. What's the theological point of Job? Job is faithful. His friends didn't interpret it well. He wasn't in, they were not interpreting the issue of how a God who is providentially reigning and ruling over the earth and that it's good allows trouble in the life of his people. He's saying at the outset, Job is a man who walks with God. The psalmist is saying, I am walking with God. And so when you, leave, when you sit there and you consider that, you say, okay, his trials were not his own making. And so that's what we're dealing with today. The psalmist believed this monumental truth, but when he tested it, and he looked at the wicked doing well, and he looked at his own life where he's struggling, it did not make sense. It did not make sense. So, that's kind of where we are today. And I think it's important to say that because you are going to look at social media, you're going to drive through your neighborhood, you're going to drive into someone else's neighborhood, you're going to go into the workplace, and you are going to see people that you think they really, I mean, they may go to church, but they really, they are not sacrificing Jack for God. And you're going to wonder... How does this work? You know, that's just a reality that you're going to deal with. Sometimes they may throw that up in your face, and other times they may just quietly live their lives. But you're going to wonder, how does that work? That doesn't add up to me. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He is a worship leader in, in, in the temple. Like he's someone who has put dedicated his life to serving God. He doesn't understand. He has dedicated his life to exploring the things of God and presenting that to the people of God and calling them to praise God. And his life has a lot of trouble. And again, he does not understand. Some of you might say, well, I'm sure that he was not this or not that or didn't work hard enough. Okay, that, that's not what we see. Job's troubles and this worship leader's troubles, both are not as a result of them bringing it upon themselves. How do you answer that, wise one? Right? How does wisdom speak to that? How does God speak to that? That's kind of what you have to come to. I think that's really important for us to see. So, this is the third book. It starts with the third book of the Psalms. Again, this is wisdom literature. We start in the third book. It goes from 73 to 89. Eleven, eleven of these Psalms are written by Asaph, who we are uh, reading a Psalm of him today. He it was a worship leader. He would lead uh, people in singing, compose music, and, and texts for services. And so uh, that is 
who he is. And so he's certainly committed to doing that. God has, has uh, directed his steps in that way. He's a pr- priestly uh, person. And then even in the psalm series, as you're, looking at book, as you're looking at book three, there are four psalms by uh, the sons of Korah who would in the same way function as he functions. So again, this is a worship leader uh, like set apart because of his responsibilities at, you know, in that tribe, but also uh, his gifts and all those things are on display. And so he is dealing with today uh, things that are difficult for us to understand. And um, another thing just to say about this is like, uh, do you, you know, you think in your mind, you think maybe, uh, is that something for worship, really? I mean, should he be like dealing with his struggles in worship? Uh, I always joked around because I, I had a friend that led stuff. And, and, and there was a time in the 90s, I guess, that uh, smiling in the choir was really important. You, you know what I'm saying? And so he would be up there like pushing his two fingers up against to the corners of his mouth saying, smile, y'all smile, put on a good face. This is a happy place, you know. Asaph doesn't feel that sense of like, let's fake it till we make it, you know. And the Psalms do not write. These Psalms are not written by and and said, y'all go sing these because it's always happy. Sometimes it's an imprecatory Psalm. God judge our enemies, you know. So they're like beating the drum of like, we're going to war, you know, that kind of thing. And then sometimes it is frown. Why don't he pull his fingers down? Today's a day to frown. There are troubles everywhere, you know. Sorrow is a part of the present world for the people of God who are faithful. Pull your fingers down. But that's not always the way we present it. But I think it's important to say that to one another. You need to deal with the hard issues of life, and you will. You need to deal with it, and you will. And we, in our worship, need to deal with it because what you struggle with in secret needs to be brought to the congregation so we can publicly say sorrow's part of this age God's still there and so I encourage you to think about that think deeply about that the tempter wants you to not deal with those things he wants you to question the goodness of God He wants you to do that in secret. The psalmist wants to bring that to the fore and say, you know what, there's some things about that I don't understand. So what do we do? So, verse 1 starts with that statement, as we talked about. Verses 2 through 14, you're going to see the problem. When he looks at the wicked prospering, he looks around at the righteous himself in the mirror, and he's weighed down by trouble. He, he, that's 2 through 14, and 15 through 28 gives you the solution. So let's, let's move through here. Verse 1, God is good to his people. That's kind of like, you could say, worship empowers you to see the end and, and, and the present. And, and so we say, God is good to his people. Truly, God is good to his people, to those who are pure in heart. Uh, the truth tells us that God is good to his people. In the scriptures, we see that. He's saying those who are committed to God. When you think about Israel, you think about a mixed community. You could be a part of Israel, but not a part of the people of God, not a person of faith. 
It was a mixed community. Here he's saying those who are the believing people who walk with the Lord, he is good to his people. They know him. They're in communion with him. He is good to them. So I think it's just important to say, with this truth, you, you could kind of mess it up in two ways. One, if you say you will never experience trouble or trial in this world because God is good to his people, you've falsely applied it, this text. The other thing is say, if there's any problem in this world that drives you to call into question the goodness of God, like you've misapplied it. Well, surely he can't be good because you said he's good, but then it doesn't feel that way. So both of those are a problem. We're saying, hey, God is good to his people. That is a theological uh, framework that you have to come to and say, those who know the Lord, who walk with the Lord, who walk in faith, who commune with God, he is good to his people. The second thing is there's a problem that, that the righteous face. I mean, that, that's going to be... There is going to be this problem. They're going to struggle with it. And, and if you look here, I think it's important to say there's a lot of verses. So look at verse 3. We'll start there real quick. Say, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. A lot of times, arrogance, high view of yourself, uh, boasting, self-righteousness, those go very closely with uh, the people he's talking about here. He is struggling with when he sees those wicked people prosper. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease, they increase in riches. What he's saying is, is I'm looking out. At this point, he is not looking inward. He's not looking in the mirror. He is just walking along throughout life, and he says, and again, if he lived in the context of Jerusalem, he is living among Jewish people, but not, like I said, not all of Israel was, they were, even though they were apart, they were not apart in the sense of like faithfully walking with the Lord. And so he is um, walking out among these people and thinking like they are prospering and they are worldly, and it doesn't really make sense. They're enjoying the blessings of this life, but they really aren't committed to God. Uh, you, you could ask kind of the question, how could God be said to be uniquely good to those committed to him when they are experiencing trouble and the righteous, are, I mean the unrighteous, are experiencing blessing? So he's looking out across these things and saying like this, doesn't make sense. So I'm going to keep hammering that because I think that if you're honest and you look out across life and you think, I've devoted myself to this. I've devoted myself to Sundays. Everybody's out taking their whole weekend, goofing off, doing whatever they want to do. They're like just parting their life away, enjoying all they're drinking in as much as they can of this present age, and you are committed your life to Christ. You do sometimes wonder how does this work? Why do those who give very little credence to God, I mean, they may say, oh, I believe in God, you know, but they don't live for him. Why do they keep doing well? It seems like God doesn't care. Look at this problem as he continues in verse 13 and 14. He leaves looking at the world 
And then he looks in the mirror and he sees himself aging and the pains of this life wearing. And he may feel like pressed down. Verse 13 and 14. All in vain I've kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. What's he saying? He's saying, when I stop and consider myself, I think I have worked very hard to live the Christian life. I have worked very hard to, to walk in the ways of God. And, the, and if you've, you've probably found this out, the closer I get to the truths about God and His holiness, and, 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 and the, the closer I get, the more I, I can feel. I, I, that's where you find out, too, again, somebody that's like, that reads the Bible and like, oh, I've read that and I keep it. That kind of person, I'm going to be good enough, uh, you know, before God, because like I, they have a very simple understanding of the depths of their sin. But somebody that's pressing in and getting closer, the more magnification there is on sin. And so you say, oh my goodness, it goes beyond my behavior to my heart, and it weighs me down. Somebody that's like really good at like being uh, religious, kind of, they just kind of like, the heart just is not that important. It's all about the external act. So I just say like in this way, he's saying like, there's a heaviness that comes with the pursuit of these things because I am hit by the weightiness of my own frailty and I'm rebuked in a sense in, in that way. I think that's kind of what you're seeing on display. He is, but but you got to say here, he is measuring the goodness of God based upon the circumstances of worldly people and his personal circumstances. That's how he's measuring it. He is measuring the goodness of God by his personal circumstances and the worldly, their circumstances. And that's how he's measuring the goodness of God. And in a natural sense, in a very earthly, if you just put on earthly glasses, you, you, you can easily do that. You put those on and you say, this doesn't add up. He is struggling, and in his pain and sorrow over the difficulties that he's facing, he, 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 those things keep like blaring into his ears. Look how well they're doing. Look how poorly you're doing. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt that way in your marriage? Have you ever felt that way in raising your children? Have you ever felt that way as a child? that is struggling and watching your life and struggling with just kind of parents saying, like, let's keep doing the right thing. You're like, man, this is stinks. What do I get from that? So what we say is, verse 1, God is good to his people. He believes this truth. His circumstances and the circumstances of the God-rejecting people don't add up to him. Because he says, God is good, then why am I not experiencing good? Third, what is God's solution? Because you're dealing with, like we have to answer that. God's solution is this. And we've got to look at it and think about it and consider it. 
Um, verse 17 and 28 are going to really kind of like, kind of be at the heart of like answering that question. And we're going to look at all of that. But I think it's just important for us to look at verses 15 through 17. And we're not looking at every verse, but we're going to see that just a little bit more clearly. Look at verse 15 through 17. I had said, I will speak thus. I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. So, so I want you just to stop and say one thing, just big thing here. Where does he go? What changes his perspective? Because he is looking at everything on a, this, this earthly level and this horizontal view. Um, what changes his perspective? That, that's kind of where you got to get. And so this is what happens. He goes into the sanctuary. What, what do you do there? In the sanctuary, you worship God. In the sanctuary, you meet with God. In the sanctuary, you draw near to God. And all of those things reorient his view of the things of this life. They change it. <clears throat> because he stops for a moment and he understands in the sanctuary, he sees God. And that, that changes things for him. The first thing is, when he goes into the sanctuary, just kind of look back at verse 15, he realizes there's other people there. And the generation behind him is listening. And he stops and says, that's what we say about our worship. Our worship is towards God with one another before the watching world. We say that over and over. And we have to say to that, like, if our worship is not pointed towards God, stirring up other believers towards faith and godliness, and then telling the watching world, hey, behold our God. That, that's off. And so in this moment, he stops and says, I've got to remember other people are listening to my thoughts, and what I'm saying does not match up properly with the way in which we need to think. Now, there's that, and I think that's important. But I think it's also important to say, although he does recognize that, we don't take the first half of the psalm away. Why? Because everybody secretly is struggling with the same thing. They are. People are quietly in the pew thinking, they're all smiling. I'm not smiling. Why is that? Like, why am I not smiling? They're all smiling. They're cheery and chipper. Why am I not smiling? Doesn't feel like God's good. They're saying God's good all the time. You know? And so I think it's important that we understand that. It's saying to us, the psalm is, is you are not alone. You are not alone. You are not alone in those struggles. When you... Strive to live for the Lord, and it costs you financially. It costs you your time. It costs you your energy. It costs you times of physical rest. It, it, it causes you to carry burdens. When all of those things are going on, it causes you to look at your sin and to face that, when all those things are like that and you're 
struggling with that, I think it's important to say, hold on just a second. You are not alone in your struggle. And God does have a solution. As you as a kid, as you're growing up, there's going to come a time where you're going to look up and think, my parents' commitment to Christ cost them. And it cost me. And I have to get up and I have to go there. I don't have to go play, goof off and play all the time. My parents aren't going all around the country playing every weekend. They're not spending, you know, a large percentage of their time is devoted to being there on Sunday, to worshiping God. And you're, as a young person, you look and think, what good is this? All my friends are having the best time, and here we are going to listen to this crazy preacher and singing songs that I may or may not always understand. And some of that's a struggle. It'll weigh you down at times, and it can be somewhat, I mean, everybody's kind of facing that. So again, he is saying, as you're looking at this, he's saying there is a solution, but the solution is not what you think. Because the psalmist is going to say, kind of secondly here in verse 16, I still don't really understand it. Why is it that they seem to have all the good things and almost brag about it? And if you spend much time around them, they're like making it like they're some superior human being. But you've devoted your life to serving. That doesn't make sense. He says, when I thought to understand this, it's a wearisome task. You can't figure it out. So you're saying, well, hold on, Jared. Isn't there an answer? Well, the answer is not why. It does not answer the question of why God does good and provides all these good things for those who do little or nothing with regard to him or despise him. But verse 17, he goes into the sanctuary. He draws near to God. Verse 28 says, But for me it is good to draw near to God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of your works. What does he say? Now this is, this is life with God is the good life. That's what he learns in the sanctuary. He says, I know the earthly circumstances are not, don't make sense. But life with God is the good life. Life is not found in worshiping the creation. Life is found in worshiping the creator and redeemer, the savior of your soul. Life is in God. With God's people, you could take their house away, their family away, their friendships away, their livelihoods away. You can take everything away but you can't take God away. God is with his people. He is life. He's not just a good life. He is life. He had to go into the sanctuary to remind himself he is life. He is the one who satisfies the soul. Every one of those things that you might pursue after, and it looks, when you look across the landscape, you think, they have it all. But they don't have him. They don't have him. 
And so they'll seek to satisfy themselves in every good thing that God does provide, but they will put all the weight of their life on those things, on those pleasures. And they are seeking something that will never satisfy. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 17, 3. This will blow you away. And this is eternal life. Heaven, me like sipping on some kind of little drink and laid back, looking around and goofing off. Is that heaven? And this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you. God is the good. That's what he's saying. He is the good. Not your house. Not the places you go. Not how much you have. He is the good. That's what he found. These people may have more of everything in this present age. More money, more homes, more land, more fun, more experiences, more, more, more. But the goodness that really matters and satisfies, they do not have. Augustine, when he was writing his autobiography, went through all of the things, all of the exploits of his youth in sorrow. And one of the things he said of his life is, my heart was restless until I found rest in you. They are trying to satisfy themselves with the things of this earth, and those things are somewhat delightful. I mean, that's just the reality. We enjoy some of those things. God gives us some of those things. But the reality is, it does not matter how much you give to a human, it will not satisfy his soul. You're worshiping the creation and not the creator. And it will not satisfy. The thing that they do not have is communion with God, fellowship with God, intimacy with God. They will never experience that. They may even have a form of godliness, but they will never experience that. And so the psalmist is saying, that is the thing. I do not have an answer for why the Lord prospers the wicked. I don't have an answer for that. I don't know why he pours it on. And I don't have an answer for why he causes his people to suffer. I don't have an answer for that. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't add up. The most holy and the most committed Christians I've ever known are some of those, those who have experienced the greatest trials I've ever seen. And I don't understand that. But all you have to, the psalmist is saying, come into the sanctuary and you'll experience transcendence. You will experience the one true and living God. Verse 23 says, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You 
hold my right hand. There are some of the wealthiest people I know that are the most fearful because all that they built their life on is sand. They've, they've built it on sand. They're constantly just living in fear that something might rob them of their security. He says, you hold my right hand. When my boys grab my hand, you know what that does inside of them? Stability. Security. He's got me. He's got me. You guide me with your counsel, and after your, you will receive me to glory. He is walking me through this life. He is counseling me. Stay in my face. Stay before me. Look and behold the glory and the wonder of knowing the one true and living God, and you're going to walk with me all the way to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I decide, a desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Verse 28. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my God my refuge. I may tell of all your works. The world whether you believe it or not, they are chasing after mirages. And you know what? They're eating dirt. Did you know that? They're eating dirt. Because no matter how amazing they make it seem, they're always ending up with dirt in their mouth. The people of God are chasing after him. And what they are finding is a pool that will satisfy not only in this life, but in the one to come. Final thing to say here is the psalmist realized their end. Is that not shocking? The end of the righteous and the end of the wicked are two separate places. Verse 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. They will, have, they will not be holding his hand. Do you understand that? They will not be holding his hand. They will be so fearful of his return that they will be crying out for rocks to crush them so they don't have to face his wrath. His right hand will send them into eternal damnation. That's where the wicked will be. That's where the worldly will be. And what he is saying is the worldly they better drink up as much of this present age as they possibly can because what they will end up with is total and complete, eternal damnation. If you see their end, it will help you press on in the present. But for the righteous, eternal communion, 
That's why the psalmist could say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So he doesn't answer the thing of providence. Why God rules his world the way he does, he don't know. He doesn't know. Why do the wicked prosper and the worldly prosper and the righteous struggle? He, he, doesn't, he doesn't answer that. But what he does answer is this. The righteous have something that the worldly will never have. Communion with God. Communion with God. Both in this life and in the one to come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We know it is hard to understand life in the present. We know that some of the right, most godly saints we've been around face great difficulties. And we're sad about that. But we are not sad in an ultimate sense for them. Because they get to come into the sanctuary. They get to come into the presence of God. They get to know Him deeply. And they get to know Him eternally. In Christ's name, amen.